Welcome to the Sports United Podcast. This is episode 23 and boy do we have a doozy for you because it's such an interesting and intriguing and potentially long episode. We're not going to have any other segments. We're going to continue our Olympic sports coverage next episode. It's just going to be our sports report because we have a very special guest, our most famous and probably most requested guest to date, JT Returns, our social commentator, the guy who has the heartbeat on what is going on in society, uh, in politics, in music. Uh, super interesting conversation the last time we had him on, and so much so that some of you requested that he come back. So fiery, and he's back, and we get into a whole bunch to talk about. So much so that the conversation just kept going and going, and it's going to be a long episode. So sit back, grab some food. Listen in. If you have to take some breaks, go right ahead. Uh, And we'll be back uh, with episode 24 with segments next week, which brings us also to episode 25. So we're going to have a huge giveaway on episode 25. It's coming up super, super fast. So be sure to like our social media pages, Sports Tonight Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, Sports Tonight Pod 1 on Twitter, or Sports Tonight Podcast at gmail.com. You'll find out by listening to the podcast how to enter, what the contest is, what the prizes are, and how to win. So stay tuned for that coming very, very soon, just in time for the holiday season. But without further ado, we're going to send it to our DJ extraordinaire, DJ On Point, JT. And welcome to this week's Sports Report. As many of you have requested, we have the uh, most famous interview uh, we've done so far. Uh, Our favorite JT is back. Welcome back to the show. Requested. You are lying. You are lying, but thank you. I can confirm. I have one email requesting you back, so... Hey, well, to whoever, uh, whomever sent that email, thanks so much. I'm happy to be back. And yeah, appreciate you taking the time with me again. This was a lot of fun last time. Let's do it again. So a lot has uh, happened since we last had you. Uh, Leagues have completed them. Uh, Others are uh, almost done. Some have gone from traveling to a bubble. Some are just powering through uh, with doesn't matter how many people get COVID, they're going to keep going. Lots of social issues have happened uh, with 2020 just being a gut punch. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if in a perfect world, uh, back in 2019, everyone kept joking that 2020 was going to be the perfect year because it's 2020 eyesight. Uh, if there is no pandemic, uh, what type of position do you think, I guess, in North America we would be or globally we would be because there'd still be a, an election in the U.S. So that clearly would have brought up stuff. Uh, But do you think the pandemic has been good in that aspect or harmful uh, with bringing up issues or getting eyeballs on the issues? Do you think there would have been the same amount because the internet exists or everyone just had more time on their hands so they seem to care more about it? Uh, What would the world be in a better place with or without the pandemic socially? Uh, I guess it depends on your definition of better place, good, harmful, all of that. Um, if the pandemic didn't happen, I don't think we'd be having a cultural revolution right now. Uh, I think they're so intertwined. I think the shutdowns that came from the pandemic forces our minds to go elsewhere. Uh, 
I mean, quite, quite simply, if there was going to be a cultural revolution, it would have happened years ago. It would have happened like when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling. It would have happened when Mike Brown was killed. It would have happened when uh, Tamir Rice was killed. But all of that revolution came out of it. So I think the pandemic and the forced shutdowns is what put us into a state of being vocal about these issues and finally having the time, the increased outlet to spark a cultural revolution. So if the pandemic didn't happen, uh, yeah, we'd still be heading into a U.S. election. Uh, that would be just as crazy as it is right now. I, or or there, maybe there'd be different running mates. I don't know. But I, I wouldn't think that without the pandemic, we'd be in a cultural revolution. And I think we would have just been status quo this year. Nothing would have been better. Nothing would have been worse. Just a typical year that we've been experiencing. Does that make sense? Uh, I, that totally makes sense. And yeah, if it's the status quo and just year after year, you know, every four years there's a U.S. election and issues get brought up and protests happen. Um, but I, I agree with everyone looking for something that's not COVID and with, you know, everything that's gone on and finally people saying enough's enough, they're throwing their entire weight since they have the, the effort and the time, not having to worry about work or other items uh, that uh, this was the the way to go and finally they saw a, a chance at change and uh, I mean I hopefully think things are going in the right way things have definitely changed whether they continue on and we reach that kind of high plateau that everyone wants it's obviously going to take time and you know elections have to happen and legislation and laws have to be put in place and people removed and new people put in power at all levels and organizations. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's, it, you know, this issue has been centuries in some aspects in the making. So it's not just going to be an overnight fix. Like some people kind of want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, uh, what comes out of the pandemic too, from it all is um, that hyper sense of elitism uh, or classicism and who's who's going to be the victim of everything so we know that if you are from an impoverished region if uh, you know you're the the lower end of the ranking system in your place of work or anything like that the pandemic has been harder on you uh, it's just it's exacerbated the classes issues that we've always had so it maybe did finally spark into our heads like well crap like life could very well be this short right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's the end of the world. So we rush to do everything possible. And that's what uh, maybe opens up our, our voices to the cultural issues, to environmental issues, to political issues. Like they're really all intertwined. And the pandemic is kind of a blessing in that sense. That's a, that's a terrible thing to say. I don't, I understand the, the difficulties that this pandemic has placed on people and the, the harm, but there are some blessings that have come out of it. And if the blessing in the end is that we're finally going to start changing culturally, if we're going to break down capitalist systems, if that's what you want, if we're going to be environmentally conscious, I think that's all a result of the pandemic. Uh, I would completely agree. There's, there's so many things 
where you know you had that month and then two months and then the outlook was like okay this is going to go on for a while obviously there were still people who were like no no june's we're going to be fine june summer <laughs> vacation but the people that really took okay what can i do with my time to better either myself my community um my you know my people getting people to understand different cultures and religions and i think really it has allowed so many people to get in involved and take action when they normally wouldn't have including athletes so mm-hmm. do you think that uh the break at least for those few months uh in north america that those athletes were able to kind of use their voice and get people talking getting them involved because just even starting to talk about it that's a, a win in some aspects um because they had all this time to actually throw their weight into uh, being involved in these issues, some even walking uh, in those peaceful protests. Uh, So do you think that that aspect of the pandemic and leagues shutting down allowed more famous athletes? And like you said, those impoverished areas, a lot of those athletes, depending on the sport, have come from those circumstances and seen as Mm -hmm. sports as their way to get out of that and affect their families and even their communities. So do you think it's kind of like, okay, now they're going to use their, their powers to bring awareness to those communities. And this is the time to start that change. Um, Do you think again, that would have been the status quo if, you know, 2020 would have been normal. Hmm. Um, For sure. I think that's, that's what brought them out. I'm curious. I've been trying to figure out how much, athletes or celebrities in general have been the leaders of this charge um i don't think they have been i think it's been more uh public or community leaders in general are the ones who use the opportunity to to start focusing on this and and lead the charge and athletes and celebrities because they had the downtime had latched onto it uh not in a bad way that had joined on and and forwarded the movement but I'd be interested to see if, if they were really any of the leaders uh, in the changes and, and voicing the movement. If they were the leaders, then the argument can be made that it could have happened even without a pandemic. If George Floyd had still been killed when there was no pandemic going on, if Jacob Blake had still been killed when there was no p- pandemic going on, and the athletes, particularly in the NBA, had been uh witness to this out of a pandemic maybe they would have forwarded the charge but i'm still not confident on that uh <laughs> i i'm so negative and cynical in in people's minds i still really believe that if there were no pandemic and this was a, a typical year we were in we wouldn't have seen much difference i think it would have just been the status quo um but to, to answer the question briefly yeah absolutely with sports shut down it gave the athletes something to, to do it was a platform for them to use and to keep their voices out there. Nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, and at this point, any voice that can further a social cause, such as what we're going through, is, is going to be a benefit. Um, yes. Would, would the question, uh, what if I posed, so uh, someone like LeBron James, as every, you know, he's so well known, uh, you know, whether you hate him or love him, you know, because he's so good and challenging potentially what some people say is 
the best that's ever played the game and that causes hate because people are like, no, you, you can't be the favorite because this guy's the best. And But when you, when you take a step back of what he's done for his community in Ohio, you know, him starting uh, his own school and, you know, making it free for those people, providing meals and getting those kids out of really potentially harmful situations and are giving them an opportunity and always talking about, you know, the, you know, especially when it comes time to vote, like this is your chance to uh, make a name, make a change. And uh, so I would say if anyone were to be a leader, at least for the NBA, it would be him. Um, obviously he has to also play basketball to afford to run a school and uh, endorsements mm-hmm. and he's shooting a movie and he's a very busy guy. Um, would you say that other athletes, maybe not so well-known might feel they can't live up to a shadow or a person or a big personality like a LeBron James, uh, so that there may be more on the kind of quiet end and maybe the pandemic allowed them to feel like their voice would be heard a little bit more than the like all-star athletes. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that one for sure. LeBron James is an excellent example uh, because he has been extremely vocal about it. Um, I think he even tweeted or Instagrammed, uh, fuck this, we're done kind of thing, uh, which I stood behind. But uh, you can't argue against LeBron James because of everything you said. He backs up everything he says with action. Um, And the public needs to remember that before they open their mouths on anything with him. I think it can be intimidating on other athletes in a typical year, that level of notoriety or fame through the, the charity that you're doing, because it always creates some kind of unnecessary competition, right? Mm-hmm. If, um, I don't or know. If, if not you, it, the media or someone makes it, a, oh, yes. well, you only donated a million dollars. Well, yeah, maybe that player only makes $3 million a year. So one third of their salary but when you compare it to well lebron james donates 200 million dollars so is your million dollars really gonna so yeah exactly that and that uh, i think the public and the media maybe create that competition more than the players themselves for sure um and there's also the whole concept of oh well this isn't such a big deal lebron james was already doing this so you're just you're just you know taking his ideas. Uh, So I think what the pandemic has allowed is, yep, more voices to come out, but also a better sense of the collective among players. So it's, it's okay to, for let's say LeBron James to lead the charge and players to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to follow in those footsteps. I'm going to do this too, as much as I can afford or however uh, much I can give intellectually to the cause. And because you have that free time, the public and the media are allowing it a bit more and understanding that this isn't a competition base. It's a more the merrier kind of thing. That's a hard concept in sports in general, though. The existence of sports is competition, winner, loser, that whole thing. So again, yes, The pandemic absolutely allowed more people to come forward with it, allowed more people to hop on the train. Um, Without the pandemic, I think those things could have still been happening, 
but I'm not sure there would have been as clean a sense of collective as there is now. Everybody coming together with the same voice and the same cause. That's something I want to see more out of in sports in general from the top down. It can't just be the players who are, who are the voices of change. It can't just be the players donating their money. Like the leagues have to do this. The management has to do it. The boards have to do it. So that I'm still not seeing as a result of the pandemic. And I'm not sure we're going to get to that point anytime soon. Uh, on that, I will say, I believe basketball is probably the furthest along, especially because of their, they're not new anymore, about seven, six, seven years in, as commissioner, but he's the one mm-hmm. that listens to the athletes uh, is more, would you say a more of an athlete's commissioner than an owner's commissioner? Uh, more for fighting for the players association. And uh, I think uh, out of every, any sport, I guess football's the anomaly because it's just such a huge operation that they make millions and billions of dollars, regardless of if there's fans in the seats or not because of TV deals. But I would say that basketball is probably in the best position because and with some of the ownership too. So you get people like, you know, Jay-Z who are making a connection and people who are hugely involved in these social movements. And I think that the owners are, I will say maybe once uh, in a year or two, once things kind of go back to semi of a normal and owners can start to make money again, that some of that money can be thrown into making these communities and actually invoking change. I will, obviously that's not going to happen because they're not making as most amount of money as possible with no fans. And we'll see with the new season, what happens, but I think in a few years there, after everything that's gone on and how much the players really push the social issue, I think maybe basketball, I'd say, of course, this maybe, um, mm-hmm. I think they're the furthest along with everyone kind of on that same page. And I think that's one thing that I'm hoping we will see is at least as a company, you know, you're going to have competition. That's the whole reason, like you said, to have a sport, to see who's the champion for fans to be like, yeah, my team won, you suck. Um, But I think that might be, you know, athletes when they're not playing against each other, they're starting to, you know, become friends. They're starting to hang out, be in, you know, movies and have other ventures. And I think you need that community and that camaraderie to be able to do that. So I'm hoping something to come out of this pandemic is that outside of competition and the actual sport aspect is that you can be as one. And I'm hoping something like hockey that's not been as inclusive to other uh, nationalities, uh, I'm kind of hoping they take a page out of that uh, because, you know, more or less Canada is very multicultural. And I think leading by example, hockey can actually help Canada as a country and move that forward. Because we, we like to say that we're very, you know, accepting, but there are definitely places and scenarios and videos that you see where it's not that oh Canada's so happy-go-lucky and they're so nice and inclusive for everyone I would say we're probably more inclusive than lots of places but we're not a hundred percent everyone's included and we hold hands uh so I, I hope hockey is the next because I don't see baseball 
being a, a factor for anything and football well football is just a mess so <laughs> yeah i agree with you on a lot of fronts there um i absolutely i think basketball or the nba and wnba in general are the furthest along in this um and i think it's it has to do also with even though let's let's be honest that these are white elitist run leagues still every facet of it is a little more witness to the 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 poverty and the the realities of those communities because that's where they go out scouting that's that's those are their people and we also have to i think i we should give credit to the nba for years now i i was making it seem like without the pandemic everything would just be typical and no players are doing any good things but the nba for years has had players that are are running charities and and doing really good causes and in general i agree that the the commissioner and the association has been supportive of that like chris bosch has had his uh uh his charity for teaching kids how to read for mm -hmm. since what 2008 or something like that either way a long time so you're right i'd say the nba is the furthest along I really hope the NHL is going to follow suit, but I don't see it happening, man. Uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I mean, that's the, the optimist in me that, you know, wants to see the, you know, started with a change where they just kind of playing nice and allowing through. Now there is the, the black uh, athlete Alliance uh, that has been formed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, hopefully they can keep pushing um, I don't know if anything will change until we, there's a new commissioner whenever Gary Bettman retires or, or dies. It, or dies. Yeah. Is he going to have that for life? I, I don't know. It, uh, I mean, yeah, he's very, I would say he's very much an owner's commissioner compared to a player's commissioner, especially with the lockout years and getting a new CBA. Um, mm -hmm. We'll, we'll see in the coming years because they had to renegotiate their CBA because um, it was going to expire with, and with everything, no one wanted to just, they just kind of let it pass for two years. Um, now they did get some things like allowing them to go to the next Olympics and having a break. Uh, so like the, I think they realized after the first lockout that it just, the salary cap was the big thing and kind of everyone got used to it. Uh, but now I think they kind of see, like they were saying, like, oh, if you're really hurting, open up your books and show us that you're really hurting. They did that in baseball and no owners were like, oh, yeah, look, see, look at how poor I am. They just kind of shut up and stopped talking after that. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not as big of a blip in the United States what hockey does. Uh really their thing is what the NFL does, mm -hmm. which is just kind of plug their ears, power through, and doesn't matter how many people get sick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about a league and a sport that has been doing everything it can for decades to be like, no, concussions aren't a thing. Don't worry about that. <laughs> We're totally not a business. We're a non-for-profit charity. Yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah. FIFA, we're a not-for-profit charity that make more money than a nation's GDP. It's fine. 
totally, totally. Uh, uh, the NFL has a lot of growing up to do, a lot of growing up to do. I think it's interesting, though, that you point out the NHL can have as a voice to and from Canada on this, in this respect. Uh, like even in, in my stream, so I, I stream for a lot of Americans now. And in all of my streams, I, I say Black Lives Matter. I wear Black Lives Matter shirts, stuff like that. And I get a lot of messages from them who, that are like, oh man, so nice to see a Canadian standing up for our cause. And I have to explain to them, it's like, well, it's a cause here too. Like they just have no, and I'm speaking generally here, but I, I don't think the US has any concept of just how rough it is in Canada for indigenous peoples and black people, any, any underrepresented community as well, and how many systemic issues we have here. And with hockey being our primary sport, it can have a lot of influence on both how we as a culture uh, approach these things, but also how, how we are um, viewed by the rest of the world, particularly the US. So I, I don't know what I'm getting out of that, but essentially like the, I think the NHL has a lot of thinking to do and they probably have a better platform in that respect than they think they do. Mm. Well, and, and one thing, and it's unfortunate that the CFL never got to play this year um, because for the past at least two, maybe three, maybe even longer. Um, but I know uh, they started a campaign, uh, campaign uh, diversity is strength, uh, not yes. only hitting on the diverse nature of Canada and its players, because there are so many different nationalities that play in Canada uh, that have come from, you know, they played university football and then got drafted and would have never even thought to play football. Uh, but also it, it also touches on uh, the kind of aspect of having a, uh, a, a gay uh, or bisexual athlete in uh, because it touches on that as well. And uh, they, they've sold t-shirts and they donate to charities that deal with those issues. Uh, and unfortunately they never got to play. So this would have been a year to really highlight that. Um, but they, uh, of, of course, more people watch hockey than football here in Canada. <laughs> so I think in the football community, they've really been inundated with diversity of strength and how, stronger it makes the sport the community uh the fans and you you can see that when you go to a football game here in canada uh just you know people actually take that to heart uh so i think if something like the nhl can do it it's gonna it's gonna blow up huge or get more eyes here in canada but also it's an american sport as well so it can only help uh their situation and join the NBA and start a huge momentum here in Canada. Uh, and, you know, maybe the NHL can partner with the CFL because almost every single city has a CFL team that has an NHL team. That's right. So, and I can, I can only see it helping uh, rather than hurting. Um, but yeah. do you, do you think smaller leagues like the CFL, um, do you think they can have a big impact as the big, uh, I guess the big four, or do you think that it's more, they have a niche market and can help that niche market that follow, but you need one of those or two or three or all four of those major sports leagues to hop on. 
and be that driving force? Um, I don't think you need the bigger leagues to hop on and be the driving force. I really don't. I think if you're, if you're committing enough to your own message, you're doing a good job at it, you're getting the word out, the bigger leagues are going to want to hop on. Um, but if you, if you go at it from, from the angle of, well, this is to get them to join in and, and for us to grow from there, you're going to fail. Um, I think the CFL was doing really great with diversity and strength. And you're right that it, it's too bad that they, they weren't able to play this year. But that also goes to show maybe they should have taken the year away from playing and focus more on this and be greater on it. So if they do their job well, the bigger leagues are going to hop on and be a part of it. And I think that's a responsibility of the bigger leagues to do so rather than for them to use it as a growth campaign of their own. Oh, you know, the more I think about it now, I don't know, maybe, maybe the CFL would better benefit if the NHL is on board with it. Or is the CFL better if the NFL hops on with it? I don't know. Damn, you just made me screw up all my logic on this one. Um, well, that's the thing. So in years past, so way back, um, going like year 2000, uh, the NFL and CFL had a kind of a partnership where they did community events. They ran tournaments. Uh, and I, uh, I got to go to a um, flag football championship for Canada uh, and the NFL also sponsored with the CFL and all the winners represented their nations and they went to kind of like a world championship. And so the, the NFL and CFL has had partnerships in the past. Um, but with everything that's gone on, especially the last 10 years, there really seems to be that they still have a partnership, obviously, in agreements when players can and can't play in either leagues. But it seems like the CFL is miles ahead in promoting uh, diversity and making it seem more of a welcoming community for anyone to play, regardless of your religion, your background, your, your sexuality. Do you think the NF, I don't think it'll ever happen, but if the NFL did hop on and say like, we want to better ourselves, do you think uh, joining a platform such as diversity of strength would help the nfl or do you think that it just they just would seem like oh you're just trying to hop on a, a cause you should start your own because the nfl is so big do you think starting their own cause that actually means something or already hopping on something that's like but the same message in the same sport uh would americans care uh i don't think it's it's a they have to come up with their own. Again, we run into that same concept of, are they just copycatting? Mm. And, and uh, why, why can't we collaborate with this? I think collaboration gives the impression that you care and that you want everybody to come aboard with it, as opposed to, hey, we're leading the charge on this, because that mentality can lead people to say, yes, I'll be a part of it, or no, I won't be a part of it. If it comes from a sense of collaboration, automatically people's heads are like, oh, let's all get involved. Um, so I, th I think it, it would help them. I think it would help the NFL in particular 
to join in on an existing one because they don't seem like they have the framework to start their own. I don't think they, they'll know where to go with it, to be honest. Um, I, one of the big problems too, or differences with Canada and US with regards to football is like you said, football in Canada, you either like it or you don't like it. Um, and the CFL, I think, understands that and are able to create such great campaigns because they know they have a smaller platform, they can concentrate it better, um, and they, ha they don't have as many teams to worry about, as many players to worry about. There's, there's a, a good, clear, realistic goal for them to achieve through their, their um, efforts. In the U.S., football is a way of life. From the, from the minute you are born to the day you retire or afterward, right? Like we're talking high school football games in the U.S. get more attendance than some Canadian cities at CFL games, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Or however, however much you can have. College football is huge there. NFL is massive there. Tailgate parties, everything. Like these are mass, mass events. Um, and I think all of that, just pulls the NFL's focus away from anything other than the game. Like it's already an event in itself. There's already so much to worry about with it. That's where it goes. I think also um, the, the driving force clientele of the NFL, I'm not sure how forward thinking they are or how progressive they are. Um, and if they start getting a league that's preaching to them, you're not only dealing with people in the stands who may react negatively, you're dealing with people in the parking lots who may react negatively. You're talking about people at home who may react negatively uh, at high school games, at college games. Like if, if the NFL does any one wrong move on a cultural level, I mean, you could create war because <laughs> there are so <laughs> many people involved with the NFL. But if they do it right, they'll see that all those other communities that love the NFL, the, the black communities, the Hispanic communities, like all of them that love the NFL will be on your side. And you, you can maybe open up the diversity a bit. So we've been talking about the NFL. Um, it has started since you were last on. And uh, we've mm. seen uh, teams trying, uh, you know, weed their way through how to handle the Black Lives Matter movement, their players' request to kneel, uh, whether they want to be uh, on the field when the anthem is played or not. Um, they went through and said, no, no, we're playing the anthem at every game. So some teams decided to just stay in the locker room. Uh, so the kind of right off the bat, the first game of the season uh, was uh, Houston and Kansas City. Houston decided to stay in the locker room during the national anthem. Um, and then Kansas city was out there. Uh, they had about, uh, it was like 22% uh, attendance uh, because it was back in September. So uh, whatever that worked out to be 11, 15,000, whatever it was. So then uh, whatever happens, uh, Houston comes on and then they do uh, something uh about solidarity so all the players linked arms making a human chain showing that you know their strength in numbers 
which is uh, something that the both teams wanted to do. So kudos to them. And then the fans booed. They got booed for showing mm-hmm. strength and diversity on the first game when you're trying to show that this is, you know, not that we want need to be together to move forward and fans are booing. Uh, now, I don't really know the makeup of Kansas City uh, as a city and what its affiliation is like, but it's n- not a good look. Uh, and of course, nothing's been done about it, but like a lot of the fans are from these cities and want to see it. So why, why do fans boo? Uh, now, they weren't sure if they were booing because they didn't come out, the Texans didn't come out to the, for the national anthem. I mean, I'm sure people booed for different reasons, but when you're on national, the only game on Thursday night opening game and people are, they're showing this on TV and people are booing. You're, you're just kind of scratching your head. You're at a loss for what is happening. It's exactly what I'm talking about, man. If the NFL goes too cultural forward or progressive thinking on something, war will start man and that's it's because so much of the following of the nfl are of a certain ideology from certain states and are just i i really hesitate to say like uneducated in these respects because that's not true like it's it's so unfair to say those things but the so much of the nfl following is not progressive thinking and they are of that mindset that you're there to play a game and nothing else. Um, they're also, man, are they American patriotic in the sense that don't disrespect our flag, don't disrespect our anthem and anything like that. And that misconception of what the protests are about is feeding into their reaction. So I think it's, it's two faults. Um, one, the public, okay? Like the American public, that particular sector of the public needs to start growing up and needs to start listening and, and be forward thinking uh, because they're not helping themselves. They're not helping any cause right now. But the NFL, I think, needs to do better in the messaging. So if you're, I think it's a really great thing that they are now like, yeah, if you want to kneel during the anthem, kneel during the anthem. If you want to stay in the locker room, stay in the locker room. Like them supporting that is great, but don't just do it and not tell anybody why, right? So I think the NFL really needs to get out to the public and be like, look, here's the situation. They're not against our military. They're not anti-America. The fact is their brothers and sisters are being killed in the streets by police officers. They're against this. They're allowed to use our platform for that reason. They're still here to play a game for you and they, they still love and respect you in, in that. I don't know what the proper messaging has to be, but it does seem like that the NFL is taking a right step in allowing to, them to do those things, but then not doing any of the back end work for it. Well, that's they're leaving it up to, I guess, the teams who are then leaving it up to the individual players to have to explain why they're not doing it. Because, yeah, like you said, like they were not really allowing, they were kind of with how they dealt with Colin Kaepernick, they were just being like, see what you, if you do that, like, this is what's going to happen, but not really saying it, just kind of being like those threatening eyes being like, see, 
see, it's the people who are really upset with this. So this is why he's not playing. It's totally not us not allowing him to play and, you know, making the, the goal line even farther away. But yeah, they're not doing anything and then still having flyovers and everything just showing. And you're right, it's it's not about the military. That's what Kaepernick first started by sitting, which mm-hmm. if you talk to a lot of people is even more disrespectful than kneeling. When you kind of give them the, the option, they say, no, don't sit at all. And he consulted people in the armed forces hey, I want to protest this. This is why I'm protesting. What should I do? And they were the ones to come up with taking a knee. Okay. So, of course, if you ask people in the military, everyone's going to have a different opinion, what it means to them, because that's what being human is about, having different reactions and backgrounds. And that's why you come to your conclusion. But he got, he had people and discussions with people in the military and they said this is the best course of action you're still out there you're showing your support but kneeling shows that you uh, are not everything is right in america and you want to afford change and this is bringing eyes to that thing and then he gets lambasted for everything doing that some of his teammates joined him and they didn't get it as worse but they still got kind of the side eye and being like, why are you doing this? And just, there's no, no answer. No, well, how do we do this? Where do we protest? Like, how do we invoke change and show that not everything is right in the good old US of A? And they're just, the NFL is just like, well, figure it out yourself. Yep. Uh, And well, and that uh, issue of how do we protest effectively it's not just an NFL one. We know no. like <laughs> anywhere in the U S black people have not been allowed to protest. Anyway, they get violent. Oh, you shouldn't be violent. They do it peacefully. Oh, you shouldn't be protesting. Riots happen. And let's all agree that it's probably not the people starting the riots, but either way riots happen. Well, you should be doing it peacefully. Like you just can't win when you're black and trying to speak in America. And I don't get how the NFL doesn't realize that. Like, how can the NFL still exist and not understand that they have to do their end of it? They have to support their players. Um, because when you, it's too easy to put, to put the responsibility entirely on the players because then they're forced to be their own voice. It forces them into a position where they may say the wrong thing or lose their temper, and then it gives the NFL a pass to get rid of them. I, and that's... That's crazy. Um, And again, like we spoke about last time, the public sees players as a service position. So when you are not providing me the service I want, I'm going to be against you. So as long as the NFL is going to put the players in the position where they have to defend themselves in this respect, the public is never going to care. They're They're the manager that doesn't back up their employees. They just leave them out to dry. 100% exactly and until the money stops coming in they stop getting sponsorships or they the the fan base or the players even they they don't get all the best players and their sub par players start to come in and the the product on the field is not as what it once was that's when the nfl i think is going to start to care because until then they're still getting billions of dollars so they're still the hottest ticket on thursday sunday 
Monday night, sometimes Saturdays now. Uh, they're going to have a game on Christmas. And they, you know, they, so like they're all eyes are on them, especially during a pandemic when not everyone's back to work yet, even though in the States, some States are just hundred percent back open and pretending like things aren't bad, but they still, no matter what pandemic or not, millions of eyes are on them. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you're the big boys, right? That's what happens when you're the richest and you don't have to worry about anything, right? It's like, um, um, no matter what Facebook does, no matter what changes Facebook makes to the appearance of your timeline and what videos (laughs) they allow and what kind of hate speech they allow, the public goes, hey, you can't do that. And then the next day, Facebook does it and the public's like, ah, it's okay. (laughs) Because they're going to keep using Facebook. The world is against Jeff Bezos right now, and Amazon profits keep climbing even during a pandemic. Why? You're the big boy. You really don't have to worry about any of this because you know you're still going to get the money. And I think that's the same with the NFL in the US. They don't have to. They, they, they honestly don't have to change, and they're probably not going to change until they're forced to through sponsors backing out. You're right. Uh, players backing out and they're going with backbenchers and so on and so on. They're just, and I think the NHL is the same. I do. I think the NHL is the same. They're the big boys here, at least in Canada. They have a certain way of doing things. It's working. They don't have to worry about the change. So they won't. I, I can see the NHL maybe bending a little bit because their salary cap isn't going up. Like they didn't make a ton of money uh, this coming year. So I think maybe to appeal and maybe get a few more million dollars in the few coming years to kind of reinvigorate and get things going again, whether that is a going or like, whether you say pretending or showing interest in these issues and then kind of just ghosting it and not doing anything once you're back or if they, you know, show that and be like, oh, wow, like people do care and we're making, still making tons of money and we can afford to support these causes. Once we get to that point, that's going to be the make or break, but we have to, I guess, get to that point. So they have to want to be a part of that change and invoke change and show like, no, no, we want to do this. And then whether that brings good karma and more people pay attention and buy merchandise and attend games or not that's yet to be seen mm-hmm. but i i'm stupid not to think all the other leagues don't look up to the nfl and be like wow how do you do this like look at your you know money vaults just you swim in that wow like <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't have a response there because you're right i i i agree with with what you're getting at um and the NFL is just, it's such, it's a way of life in the U S that is what I don't understand. It's not so much that I don't understand how they got to that level from a business aspect. How, what, what is it about American culture that latched onto football? That that's what I don't know. They 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 figured out a way to own a day of the week and it's the same day that is also the Lord's day. So you could have picked any other day and would have been a little bit easier, but you picked 
the Lord's day and you own that day. It's, it's Jesus, it's football and food, barbecue maybe. And that's it. Everything else. Like, isn't that fascinating though? I never thought of that. And that's probably so, such an easy thing to think of. I, at some point, the routine of your Sunday would have been go to church, say your prayers, get home, watch the game, community, mm-hmm. all of that aspect together. And yeah. it's, it's so funny. I remember watching 90s shows and they'd always make the joke like, oh, the, you know, the dad figures uh, has to go to church, but he doesn't want to because football game's on. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, like, you know, church is like, yeah, the portable TVs. <laughs> but like in my head, I'm like, well, football's not on until the afternoon. Like games start at one o'clock. Like church is like nine, maybe 10. Like even if you go to a long service, like two hours, you're still going to be going. But not really understanding that time change. So if you're on the West Coast, which uh, some of these shows were, so like in Oakland, well, the game's yeah. going to be at 10 o'clock in the morning. So obviously it's yeah. going to be in the middle of your, and you can't miss church. And so growing up, I didn't really understand. I was like, well, all the games are in the afternoon. Just like, I don't, but it was funny, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sometimes people do pick. They're like, ah, I won't go to church today because my team's playing on the East coast and it's an early game. So the Lord won't mind. <laughs> yeah. The Lord's not taking as good attendance as the NFL is for you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's such an interesting thing. I, I, I never really considered the, the correlation between the Lord's day and football. It really is a whole event of a day that's surrounded by the sense of a higher power and community coming together. Maybe that's, maybe that's why it attracts such a red state mindset and such a, a fear of progression. Well, I'm wondering too, I'd have to do more research. Um, but like, maybe like we were saying before, having a grassroots level, like years ago and getting into those communities of how much, you know, football means, uh, obviously football exploded as a sport because it shows you, you know, how aggression and how hard you can hit and the better team. And it's, it's almost like chess as well on grass because you have to outthink your opponent, but also brute strength and just the, biggest kid can win also plays a component yeah so whether they way back uh, in the years they use that to kind of grow and get those numbers and audiences and then it just down generation generation you know we watch football in this house and it just you grow up with that and it blossoms that way um i'd be interested to see if i i don't know if there are studies but kind of that grassroots level in some areas and then maybe that didn't work in other places in America and how they grew the game other ways. It'd be interesting. It's easy to, to kind of do the correlate between like a, a, a state where there's blue collar people and, you know, they're hardworking and a place like Pittsburgh is definitely, you know, a hardworking yeah. steel town. They get behind their, their team. It was named the Steelers and just they had a lot of blue collar guys who played for that and it just the city took hold and then that's how you know pittsburgh became a football town uh but it'd be right. interesting to see like somewhere like seattle they're they're known as like they have the 12th man they've retired the number 12 for their fans which kind of mm-hmm. now seems like a a stunt a lot of other teams do but they were kind of like the first ones to do it 
and really how did they become such a, you know, love for their football team uh, with also people having, you know, it comes from the, the town where grunge music happened and Amazon right. and uh, Starbucks, like that almost yeah. like transient, uh, you know, business oriented first uh, West coast lifestyle. Uh, how did they become such enamored with football? Yeah, that's really interesting to look at. Um, that is interesting to think about. Seattle in particular is a fascinating city, one that you think football wouldn't blend in with the way that that city runs. Uh, maybe it's because it rains all the time there. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. The Mariners, uh, too, have like uh, quite an insane following there, don't they? Mm-hmm. Well, and their basketball team was taken away. Yeah. Uh, and it, there's been a kind of resurgence. You'd be like, oh, bring our basketball team back. Like, obviously, you're just some, the owners are all that. We're like, well, where, are you, where were you? You weren't buying tickets and merchandise. That's why we moved the team. But you get that sense where, like, there, there are lots of fans, but they're, I guess, behind the scenes they support, but they don't necessarily purchase tickets because um, it's kind of that sense of, oh, it's always there like being a tourist in your own town. Oh, I haven't, I've lived here all my life. I don't go here because it's just always readily available. But when something is taken away, you're kind of like, oh, makes you kind of think like I should have supported this or I should have gone to more games or I should have bought merchandise because I love it. I just didn't do it. And now that they're getting a hockey team and building a new arena that uh, they went from, yeah, just having those two to maybe being a city with four major sports teams again uh it just you you wouldn't guess that seattle is such a sports town no because what's interesting too i don't know if i'm correct in this but you seattle's not exactly a championship winning town um yeah they've well they've won one super bowl they haven't won a world series they uh their basketball team was pretty decent in the 90s but kept running into michael jordan and never won a champion so it's, yeah, it's not a not like Pittsburgh where they had dynasties of Super Bowl champions, hockey team winning. The right. Pirates have won like one World Series maybe, but that was in the 70s. So, um, yeah. But yeah, there's certainly more championships than Seattle. So, yeah, and Seattle doesn't seem to. It has a very loyal following, but they don't seem to have the same following to like uh, Cleveland or mm-hmm. something, right? Like. The Browns have always sucked, uh, <laughs> yeah. but like Cleveland Browns fans are some of like just riotous or Minnesota Vikings, right? Like it's, um, they suck, but there's just this insane uproar from the fans, like they're diehards. And you don't really hear that from Seattle. Um, you know that they have a loyal fan base, but they're, they're definitely not that like, uh, the the ones that are going to fall on the cross for their teams or anything like that um but how it's interesting how football managed to stay more in seattle than basketball because i don't understand what the link would be there i don't know i don't know i don't know then again basketball didn't last in vancouver either that's yeah I don't know. 
man, you're, you're throwing a lot at me today that I'm like, I never even considered these angles. Neither do I until it pops in my head. And then <laughs> if I don't say it out loud, then I, it goes away. And yeah. uh, one positive thing uh, I would say is how many more eyeballs were put on uh, women leagues uh, during the whole pandemic, just because the, uh, at least the, uh, the WNSL, uh, the women's soccer league in America, it was the first league to come back and just everyone was just so sports hungry that a lot of viewers who might not have cared or known the teams or watched were watching and I know for a fact that they, their followings on social media and just kind of knowing who the players are, it's just gone up hundreds of percentiles. Uh, and the WNBA showing kind of leading with the NBA, uh, doing boycotts. Um, there's an owner in the WNBA who uh, is a senator and kind of got in hot water because they don't believe in the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and they were the players who are playing on her team who get paid by this person were boycotting saying don't vote for this person like my boss is horrible like that mm -hmm. takes a lot of guts and I think it's won over a lot of people um, so do you think going forward uh, women leagues are kind of starting to get into that precipice where they might be able uh, might be on primetime uh, viewing and there might be games um, they might have games, maybe not on Christmas, eventually maybe on Christmas Day, but maybe Boxing Day, although that's not really a holiday in America. But uh, getting those kind of primetime slots that were only held by the big four. No, no. that's the cynic in me. I don't see that happening. I think um, I think the, the excess excitement for them when they when they were the first to come back during a pandemic is similar to uh the lockdown year for the nhl remember juniors were huge that year mm. huge it was crazy how much people were into juniors and i think it's kind of the this same logic that led to this um if we start seeing an increase in female sports taking those primetime slot hours or you're right like maybe not the holiday but the day before or after the holiday or or anything like that. I think that's going to be a result of more gender equality initiatives rather than the current social revolution. Now, the current social revolution is and has been for the last few years through Me Too and um, uh, that uh, Time's Up movement. Um, we've seen, there's my heat again. We've seen these. Uh, these issues come become more apparent, but I don't think it's transferred into the sports world as much as it's transferred into the corporate world. So I think once the corporate world and once the national levels of politics and government become more on a gender equality level, that's when sports will follow. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And apologies to our talented female athletes out there. But I just, I can't see it happening for you anytime soon. So I can see it happening uh, whenever the leagues start back up again. But I, you're right in a sense where I think maybe, again, we go into the, the media and people are going to 
put that out there be like oh well it's just because of like this or uh they're only doing this because they want to come out on the right side and be like oh well they they're only putting it on prime time because it's a tuesday and no other sports are happening and they just want to push that you know you know the WNBA is on the same level as the NBA i think if it mm-hmm. happens and then happens again in 2021 and keeps happening in 2022 and you get more of those primetime slots, I think then it's going to show that these, it's not going to be a gimmick. Um, yeah. But uh, you're right. There could be a lot of people who just don't want it to happen. And it's just going to go back into obscurity or being shown early in the day. They're going to play all afternoon games they'll be on ESPN seven. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think though, actually that might be a good player driven initiative, uh, from the male leagues. Um, and it would certainly work between the NBA and the WNBA, um, from just either more players speaking up about the female athletes or, you know, showing that they watch those sports as well or even from a sponsor level, like maybe some of your commercials should feature both, like one male athlete, one female athlete, or push more ads that are from the female athletes than the male athletes. That might help a bit more. I Um, do believe there is now a partnership between the WNBA and the NBA. So I think going forward, we will start to see that. And already in some commercials, they do highlight some of the more higher profile WNBA players. Um, And I think there's definitely been more eyes on the kind of women's final four that happened for basketball. Um, Yeah. It's been, I've been able to watch it more on like uh, ABC, NBC, rather than just the specific sports ones. So I think, Mm-hmm. whether it was a marketing thing or uh, TV viewership or the owners of the WNBA really starting showing the college more so that people get attached to those players. And then once they go pro, you have fans of that team, whether it's a smart marketing thing or just trying to drive that, Hey, you know, the WNBA is a thing and it's a really good product and people should be fans of it. If you like basketball and trying to get that, that uh, just miss like, oh, it's only girls basketball. Like, the, oh, it, it, they score like 55 points. Like, it's not a big score. Like, I know women's soccer, at least internationally, went through that. It was like, oh, it's like girls soccer, but you watch it and it's even more violent sometimes than the guys. Like, it's a better product, I think, than yeah. watching them. And at least here in Canada the Canadian women's team could wipe the floor with the men's team. No question. No question. With how dominant the women's team has been in America, they could have wiped the men's team as well. And they've won world cups. The men's team's done diddly squat. So uh, I think with the success of international teams now, of course in basketball, it's both America, both women's and men's teams have just always been successful at the Olympics. So I, I think time will tell whether it's uh, a gimmick uh, or riding the wave or actual change. Um, but I think yeah. having those more 
more eyes and then being the leaders with the NBA for the WNBA and the boycotts. Uh, and I think people just kind of knowing the names of the W NWSL teams, uh, cause they are kind of in smaller markets, uh, along with big markets and there's a new LA team, um, uh, that's going to play, I think maybe in 2021, d- depending on, but it's owned, uh, by a bunch of, uh, women, including Serena Williams and Serena Williams made her two-year-old daughter an owner. Fantastic. So, so she's the youngest owner ever. And I don't think anyone's going to match that, but, uh, there are <laughs> definitely a few celebrities, uh, including Serena and her daughter who are part owners in the new LA team. Uh, so I think maybe some more change like that is only going to benefit those leagues and maybe drive more people to watching those games. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's definitely positive. Uh, all of what you said is a positive angle of going about it. I especially like um, the concept of promoting the college basketball, the female college basketball more and everything. Start them young, right? Start the viewers young and you have lifelong fans and everything. So um, I don't think that's so much a mark. Well, it is a marketing gimmick, but I, it's a smart one that could totally work. Um, you're right on time. will tell, obviously, like we, we have no real projections on it. Um, that's the way to go about it. The, all of that, if done right, will counter the fan concept of throwing an agenda in our face or something like that. Right. Um, that happens a lot in the arts world in the theater and film and, and acting world in general. So much so like the, the very basic is, you know, uh, the more gay content you had on. So I think for that to work in sports, it's gotta be the same thing. And, and that's all the right angle. Have female run administrations, teams, uh, get the fans involved on the college level so that they're growing up with it. And then it becomes less and less of an agenda and more just a, a way of life. Now you're, you're mentioning the, especially in the arts world at how, often do you have to really convince people that it's it's not a gimmick that it's it's for this reason this reason it's going to work and we're going to build off of it and it's just going to grow how how often do you have to explain to people that it's not just a gimmick or we're not just doing it to sell tickets or we're not just so we'll get in the paper and get free advertisement Uh, how often do you have to have that conversation and for how long um pretty much all the time and it's a constant conversation for us. So whether, uh, the thing about the arts world is it likes to, people see it as, and it likes to tout itself as the bastion of good, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're storytellers or we're, we're um, inclusive, we're equitable, we're et cetera, et cetera. And the reality is it's all bullshit. The, the arts world is one of the most elitist, um, white bread, money-driven CEO operating organizations that exist in the world. It's the exact same as the sports and maybe even worse. So we're constantly battling um, what the public wants to see, what we should be sharing with the public from a social level um, and what our boards want us to do or our management want us to do. So the, the only way 
to sell tickets consistently at a high level in the arts world, especially theater and, and film, is to do money-making stuff that we're all comfortable and familiar with. It's what's now being known as colonial theater. It's, you know, your, your typical sounds of music and all those big names that we all know because nobody will take a risk on anything. So anytime we do take a risk on something, we have to support that initiative um, through research, um, considering the importance of it, and proving its value to management and boards who are going to fund it. After that, you have to do exactly that for your audience again, but on a different angle. You have to find your marketing to suit that this is a product you actually want to see as opposed to we're just throwing a gimmick your way. Because the first thing the public does is always go, oh, well, you're just hopping on the bandwagon. Uh, it's, it's a never-ending battle in the arts. That's, that's the first thing you have to worry about whenever you're producing something. Um, the next thing is right now, we're on all this social revolution stuff, we're dealing with it just as heavily as sports and, and maybe even more so. And that's kind of why I have these, these thoughts about that your, your change needs to come from the top down, like with the NFL or something. If, if you can't just let the players be the voice of it, you have to be the voice of it from the top down because that's what's wrong with theater and film right now is the representation isn't there in the product. Why? Who's running it? A bunch of rich white people. So make the diversity on the top level and see it trickle down. Change is scary. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely uh, something that's, it has to happen. It's going to happen hopefully soon. Uh, Hopefully we start to see the change. Uh, But yeah, all good. You have to start from the top down. That's lead by example, leadership. That's what it has to be at this point because the most of the players are involved uh lots lots of fan bases are involved maybe not a hundred percent of them but uh Mm. the support will be there fans might stop watching and not be fans anymore but if you know that's how we have to drive change you have to leave the dead weight behind exactly that's that's the that's always the business question right if you're constantly appealing to your core audience, for lack of a better term, what happens when your core audience goes and you don't have a backup plan? Like, what happens? I think you always have to be willing to sacrifice your core audience to some degree because it will either open you up to a whole new chapter of people or uh, it will weed out, like you said, the dead weight. Um, I think one of the biggest things I've learned the last couple of months is that I no longer believe in the mantra that change takes time. I don't think change takes time. I think change is instantaneous. What it takes is commitment and sacrifice. If you're willing to commit to it today and do it, and you're willing to lose some people along the way or step aside yourself because you don't fit in it anymore, change can happen soon. Like you just think of it, think of how fast it all happened during a pandemic, even though we haven't really seen a full change. But what we have seen is within a couple of weeks, mass protests around the world happen. 
somehow the world was able to motivate itself to run hugely organized events in the matter of days. So what are you telling me when you say change takes time? I don't get it. All it takes now is a commitment. When we say change takes time, it means we're not really ready to commit to it. It means we're looking at all these other angles that are not a reality. It's an excuse for us to keep the position we're in and to stay comfortable. But if we're willing to sacrifice some of ourselves, step aside for the people that, I, I don't want to say necessarily, well, matter, step aside for the people that matter um, and step aside for the people that just have a better voice on this topic than you. You can be a contributor in another way. You're just no longer a leader on this facet. If we do that, change can happen tomorrow. You could even break that down into a personal level. The only, you know, when you have to make a personal change, whether it's, oh, I need to start to work out more or I need to, you know, stop eating so much sugar or, mm -hmm. you know, I need to, uh, you know, get outside my comfort zone. I really want to, you know, start to read this. Or I want to get into anime maybe, but, you know, oh, like uh, people are going to look at me like I'm weird. You have to be willing to maybe get rid of those people who are holding you back from working out and feeling healthier or reading anime or uh, knitting. Uh, you have to be, you know, confident in your decision, but you have to be committful and you have to, okay, I'm not just going to go to the gym once and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Or I'm going to stop eating chocolate because, you know, well, I didn't eat chocolate one day. I'm ate it one carrot. I feel so healthy. You have to really commit. And mm. we've been on this kind of path with, oh, if it's not instantaneous, if I work out once and I don't see the change or uh, I don't, you know, I read one book and or watch this one episode of TV show and it you know, wasn't really very good. So I'm going to quit. You have to commit for that long haul. You have to be willing to put in the work and we've been so stuck on getting instantaneous gratification that we've kind of lost that a little bit of, we have to put in a little bit of work and kind of wait to see when we see the results, then you know, it's worth it. And everyone who starts to work out or everyone who starts to read a, a big series uh, of books or uh, a TV show, those who stick it out and see, I'll be like, oh, I'm really glad I you know, stuck it out or thank you for helping me push through. They're the ones that see that, you know, commitment and getting that community support is going to drive them to where they want to be or over the top or getting that high gratification. And I think, like you said, we can organize a huge platform and protest in a matter of days. Now we have to put in the work to get that where we want to be to get that gratification that, you know, everyone is included that black lives matter. And going forward, we're going to leave our community, our city, our province state in a better place than what we got it. And maybe more people have to kind of be like, Oh, we started it and it's going downhill now. Like we've kind of slowed down. We have to keep on it we have to get more of those people. And if we can't be those people, we're going to support, but get those people that will drive us forward and over, over the hill. Yeah, exactly. I really, really like your comparison to the personal life because that's exactly what it is. If we're, 
if we're able to change pretty quickly as people, not all of us are, but those who commit and sacrifice are. And we also, as a people, celebrate those who are making those changes. Why can't we do it on a mass organizational level? Um, I have one friend actually who in 2012 was quite overweight and he had been overweight for years. His lifestyle was terrible. And it was at that point where a few of us like had each other on speed dial, just waiting for the day that we'd have to, you know, go to the hospital or anything for this guy. And one day he decided to just change. Um, it was motivated by a show he was in cause he's an actor friend. Um, and basically in his head is he was like, I don't want to be the fat guy on stage. So he started working out, changed his diet, all that. And we're not talking years before we saw a change. We're talking months. Within six months, he was unrecognizable. And not like that unhealthy reversion where you're like, whoa, you're thin, what the hell happened? Or whoa, you had crazy liposuction or anything like that. He was fit, healthy, just completely completely committed to this whole new lifestyle and he hasn't gained a pound since so we're talking eight years now like he's still committing to this and sacrificing his old way of life to be able to have this change so if he's able to do that i think i think leagues can do it and it's like you said um we need the people who are able to see the uh, however you phrase it, but to see the other folks who can contribute to it better than us. So if you take it from like a political um, standpoint, if you're up for an election, if you're in an election year and you're running for, I don't know, leader of the, of um, you're running for the liberal candidacy in your riding, let's say that. If you're running up against a black person who is, you know, for a fact is qualified will do a great job etc etc you should step down and that, that's what i honestly think i think that's the sacrifice we have to make within ourselves if i run for candidacy and i see that there's a person from an underrepresented community that is just as good or better than me or maybe not as good as me but is absolutely good enough i should step aside and let them take the job and promote them and stand behind them and i think we need to see that on boards of leagues, we need to see that in management teams. We need to see that like in every respect to just say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be an advisor now. I'm not gonna be the face of it. You're gonna be the face of it. I mean, that's that's the gosh darn truth, ain't it? Like that's, <laughs> we, we, have to, we have to get to that point. There are, you know, there, there's a time where it'd be like, you might feel like I'm the best option. Um, but then there are definitely times where you have to kind of take a look at it as a broad stroke. Uh, there have been times where I've, you know, wanted to coach and be like, oh, I, you know, I have such a positive, I want to, you know, I would love to be a professional coach. That'd be so cool. But like starting grassroots level and be like, okay, I know this and like we're doing this. And then someone else comes along and starts to do something. You have to be sometimes the bigger person. You have to, know what's better for the player the individual the team the community and have to be like okay this person knows what they're talking about they're helping this fundamental thing uh you know let them take the lead a good leader knows when to lead and a good leader knows when to let others lead yeah 
Exactly. And that's what we revere in our politicians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that was always said for Pierre Trudeau. And it's one of the things that's been said for Justin Trudeau, like putting your personal politics aside, anybody's um, alliances or whatnot. I don't think it can be denied that Pierre Trudeau surrounded himself with people who are smarter than him. And Justin Trudeau kind of did that in his first big campaign was like, okay, I need these 10 people behind me to start supporting and blah, blah, blah. And that's what built the campaign around him because that's what good leaders do. Good leaders are never the smartest person in the room. They're usually not the top five smartest people in the room. They're just a good face and a good speaker and willing to act. Mm-hmm. That's Don't I know sometimes I'm just a big bag of bricks, but uh, <laughs> gosh, I know when I can contribute and when I just need to, to shut up and let others take the lead and my pride, whatever can be hurt, but you, you have to be able to do that. And until we get to that point, and again, that instant gratification and kind of the, the me, 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 I want to be the best. Uh, why can't, oh, this person's affected, but my specific scenario over here, like you need to address that. We need to kind of start to drop that and think of the whole, and this whole pandemic has been a huge thing uh, with whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And, you know, the, just the me personally versus the, the greater good. Should I listen to a doctor or should I, oh, but it's, this person was wrong. So I need to, it's, this whole pandemic has been eye opening on so many levels that uh, who knows if we're going to come out better than we did going in, but I, things that we uh, have needed to change uh, certainly got the focus during this in both the political aspect and the sports aspect, which is pretty more common nowadays, but was so rare uh, within the last five years has only been become a thing. And I think once you start to mix those kind of circles, that's a way to start to build that community and cohesiveness uh, going forward. And we as a people, whether it's personal, you start at the personal level and build yourself up and then go community-wide, then go city-wide, nationwide. And that's how we're going to have to change. Yep. Um, I, I agree. And I don't, uh, I, I still have so much of a cynic in me that thinks whenever we come out of this pandemic that I give it a few months or a few weeks, we'll just be back to the way we were before. But I do think in terms of sports, particularly in the NBA, um, that we're going to see that it becomes more the norm that players and their voices are respected. And I think we're going to see that it becomes more of the norm that life experience is a qualification for uh, whatever your position is in career or life, or life, obviously, career or um, platform, that life experience will be that qualification. So I'm hopeful in that end. I am. I'm a little disappointed, honestly. Like I remember when we were talking in July, you had brought up if uh, you know there can be um, not a boycott, but if all the players say we're not going to play until this is fixed, 
And I had thought, well, it's kind of unrealistic. They still need a salary. Can they commit to that? Yada, yada, will it work? And then when the, when the Milwaukee Bucks did say after the shooting of Jacob Blake, we're not playing, I was so happy. And I just like, I totally thought back to our conversation and reverted my thoughts. I'm like, oh my God, this is realistic. They can actually do it and it will affect change. And a few days later happened though, and they went back to playing. And they went back so, to playing, yep. And so that's where the cynic is, is still coming back in me. So on the one end, I do think we're going to come out of this. It's going to be more the norm that players um, and coaches management will have an equal voice on this and little steps will be done, but I'm not sure mass change is going to come. Unfortunately. Well, and that was the thing they had a whole, all the teams got together and they voted whether to continue the season or not. And it was only one team who was willing to walk it, walk away yeah. and didn't like, they didn't care anymore. And all the rest of the ones, whether that was, you know, there are definitely some players who are just starting out who don't have the cash flow or the reserve to not play. So, you know, everyone has a reason to whether continue or not. And until I get, whether it affects you so much or you uh, have the ability financially to be like, no, like I am okay now and I can sacrifice my millions of dollars going forward because this has to change until or until things get super bad uh, that it just people stop caring again that, you know, it doesn't matter what, how much money I could potentially make this has to change that we had, you know, they had to make the decision no, I have to probably personally know we have to play because I need that game check to help support my parents or help my family back home that I'm not with. And especially during a pandemic when that other parent potentially couldn't be working. So, you know, kudos to them to taking that boycott at least for a few days and having that discussions and then making probably a difficult decision because they two kind of worlds have to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a, a probably a hard decision for the NBA players, um, but it invoked change where all the leagues did not play for a yes. few days, and like that's never happened before. Yeah, that's very true, and that's why even even though it only lasted a few days, it was a, it was a success. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope it remains in people's memory, you know, that that happened, and it can be bigger. Um, and I, I have to agree with you, man. I can't, as much as I know these players have a nest egg that they can sit on for a bit, we also know that they don't have as much of a nest egg as we'd like to think. All we see is hundreds of thousands of dollars, but we're not seeing the bills that they have to pay because their lifestyle. The bills, the agents that they have to pay, the, all the, you know, all their personal assistance and that, that money can go we listen to the, there's a series where they ask kind of athletes, how did they spend their first million dollars? Well, of course, when you're a kid or whatnot, you hear like, Oh, I bought this car. I bought this house for my parents. Like you can blow through a million dollars pretty quick, especially when you're 19 and you sign that first big contract. But later on, when you see, when you hear like athletes who are homeless and have gone bankrupt and you're just kind of like, well, because they don't get any financial advisement. They just come out of high school or one year of college and get given millions of dollars 
oh, cool, I can buy all these shiny things, these big mansions, and they don't know to save the money. You know, Shaq did a great thing and he invested in fast food. Yeah. He's an owner in so many fast food joints that like, that's how he was able to build a nest egg for him, but not now more than ever, they, they stress financial advisement and they give classes, but the nineties and the two thousands, there were no teams did not offer financial uh, classes or giving them people who could help them or how to invest in things. So we see stars of when we were growing up that are just like, Oh wow. Like that guy's homeless. Like how did that happen? And just, and they go right back to maybe the situation that they were growing up in that they were trying to escape. Yeah. It's so easy for it to happen because you're right without the financial advisement and people have been saying that, especially the NFL, NBA and MLB, like Mm -hmm. these, these guys should have been, it should have been a requirement to get financial advisement or uh, for them to provide financial advisement before these people enter onto the teams and start taking their paychecks. And same in the hip hop world and the RMB. Oh, the hip hop world for sure. Mass, mass celebrity, mass quick paychecks, and then it all tanks. Even Will Smith went bankrupt in 1990 or 91 because he had all this money that he just spent and spent and spent. And even who are prudent um, and just want to live the comfortable lifestyle with their paycheck, which you can't fault them for, don't have that much money in the end. Like, uh, it, I remember being amazingly surprised after Prince died, um, who, like, one of the biggest artists ever in the history of the world with so many royalties coming his way upon his death, he was only worth $300,000 because you spend the money Mm -hmm. like, and it costs to maintain that kind of a business. So if you're taking a million dollars from this one um, year of salary or whatever, well, probably 60, 60% of that is going to maintain all of your operations around you to get that paycheck. And that's what people don't realize. So what were we getting? How did we come to this? Oh, players, players boycotting or protesting. Um, So yes, that's why I can't fault the players for going back to work, which begs the question, what other systems can be in place for them to allow them to protest when they feel it's right? So if, if we end up at a day again where NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, if they all shut down because, you know, to protest uh, violence or, or whatever it is, whose responsibility then is it to help them keep getting that voice out? Because that has to be a collective effort. And that's what I want to see. Is there like a, is there a benefits package that needs to go into their contracts that for X amount of time, we'll keep paying you? Do sponsors make maybe have to step our package. If your players decide to protest for X cause, we'll cover their paychecks until this point or whatever. Do governments have to have a, a, a CERB package for them or something? I don't know. That, that's such an interesting point. Uh, and I think the most likely place that would come from would be sponsorship. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Like as progressive as the NBA owners are, they, I can't, I mean, maybe an owner or two, but not the collective 30 of them. 
I, I could see if you have a special owner who definitely like understands, um, then maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can see because each individual uh, team now has a sponsorship on their jersey. Uh, so right. whether it's like Nike definitely has been on the forefront of supporting black athletes and getting that message out there. Uh, do they step up and be like, okay, yeah, we'll cover the LA Clippers or do, does someone like LeBron James who'd be like, okay, uh, you know, I, I got you guys for like a month. Like, don't you worry. Like uh, someone like Michael Jordan or like uh, Air Jordan again, another huge, massive company, do they come in and be like, all right, for this week, we cover all 700 athletes, like all the game checks you would have gotten, they're coming from us. Like if a, if a big company does that, like I think it just opens up so many more doors. One, they're going to look really good. Yeah. And what, like that's a unpaid, like so much marketing for that. Like you're, you're going to make, hopefully that's going to cause people to be like i really like this company like let's support them because they're supporting the cause that i support but it's just gonna open up people's eyes and you know whether the nba whether there's a rule where sponsors can't do that i don't know uh, because there could be a backdoor loophole in the cba or something like that but if the ability for that to happen does happen I think it just opens up so much more opportunity and I believe the NBA is going to be the league that explores that. My back. Oh, you're back. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. NBA explores it. That's the last thing. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think the NBA will, will explore it first. Um, and ultimately I think it's the only way that, that, uh, to make boycotts realistic and work in the long term or fan support i don't know i mean fans might be able to do it as well uh i just know like yeah the ones with the deep pockets drive the change the quickest Mm -hmm. and get the most eyes so now i will end on this with the olympics moving to 2021 Mm -hmm. it, it the it kind of came up but went away uh, as the summer went on. But do we see athletes kind of protesting like in the 68 Olympics um, with the, the sprinters in the black gloves? Do we see something like that happening? And do we see it happening from athletes, maybe not from the USA? Um, I do see it happening. I don't see it on the same level unless a particular incident happens maybe a bit closer to um whatever that incident can be i hope it's nothing too terrible but i don't see it reaching the same level unless something else happens just because it will be so far removed from everything we're talking almost a year Mm. uh, more than a year for for some events uh so that's a that's a question i think yeah i do see other countries hopping on I do, because this has been already such a global phenomenon. And because, again, the pandemic was global, I see everybody hopping on to it this time. Do we see an athlete getting their medal and then hopping off the podium, not being there for their country's anthem? Because uh, 
no matter how it affects you, you always hear the story of like, you know, an athlete's struggle from training injury, you know, not lack of support where they grew up and then be, being able to get on that podium and winning that gold medal and hearing, you always hear like when you start to hear your country's anthem, like you just reflect on everything that you've gone through to get to this point. Does someone sacrifice that, that feeling that lots of athletes have documented to make a point? It's a very interesting question because the Olympics in itself is much more nationally oriented than uh, Mm -hmm. national sports. Um, I don't know enough about other countries as anthems to really answer that. I wouldn't be surprised at all if an American athlete did it. Not, Not in the slightest. And I could very much see that happening. Uh, from an American athlete. And that's because uh, one thing that we forget is that the the American national anthem is racist in its lyrics. Um, it has references to slavery in it. Now, it's not in the part we sing because it's significantly condensed for the national anthem, right? But the whole, uh, I think it's like verse six or something of it, talks about slavery in that... Um, slave owners will be protected, right? And that's, that's directly referenced in the national anthem. So there's way more of a, of a importance when black athletes in the U.S. are protesting during the anthem be, because it's, there is a direct relation there. Um, so I don't know if that direct relation exists so much in other countries and their anthems that it would necessarily warrant them to kneel or be off the podium during the anthem. I really don't know. And I don't know how they tied their, their protests into uh, visual action. I, I, I don't know what it is. But I wouldn't bat two eyes if we see one or more U.S. athletes do it, for sure. And I'd I, celebrate that. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I, I don't see it being as much of a thought maybe if a Chinese athlete or Russian athlete or, you know, a Scandinavian athlete, like the, it just, it, it would show support. Um, mm-hmm. But I just don't know if it would, especially going back to that country, what, you know, the backlash they might face because the, the issue of what's going on uh, in North America wouldn't be seen as big of an issue or, uh, wouldn't be seen in the same light, uh, especially in a country like China or Russia, uh, where the, the, it definitely has not been on the forefront. Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, I don't <laughs> think we'll see a Chinese or a Russian athlete protest their anthem. Because <laughs> uh, it, would, it would have whole another connotation that they're protesting something else, not what's going on in America. And then that might open up a whole other can of worms that... Mm-hmm. And not that I'm an authority on this, but we're talking about are they legitimately risking their lives? By doing in, in some cases, there have been actually in um, the World Cup in maybe 80s, uh, 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. And there was an incident and I believe a Colombian, the goaltender for the Columbia team, he made a mistake he misjudged a ball and a goal went in and that goal caused them to be eliminated from the world cup. 
he went back to that country and two weeks later he was murdered. Yeah. Because of a mistake he made. He wasn't protesting or anything. He just made a mistake. He's human. And just that caused him to lose his life. So the same thing can be said if you protest in certain countries that could cause you to maybe never live in that country again for your safety and your family's safety for that matter too. Yeah. That's a whole unimaginable reality that, uh, that we can't comment on. I mean, there's a lot that's wrong in North America, a lot that's wrong, but I don't think at the end of the day, we, we have an opportunity to fear that we are going to be murdered by our citizens or our government based on something we said publicly. I don't think we have that fear. Whereas they do. Yeah. Well, to end on a happy note, (laughs) uh, speaking of the Olympics, so what uh, we're doing here at the podcast is we're doing the daunting task of going through every single uh, event, if you will, or sport at the uh, Summer Olympics. And we're going through when they joined, kind of the history of it, kind of the background, what it is. Uh, and kind of who were the main players the last Olympics. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what is your favorite kind of summer Olympic event to watch? Basketball. Basketball. (laughs) um, I actually, I haven't been so in tune with the Olympics the last few. Oh, no, actually, I was was into 2016. um but yeah because like my 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 love of sports in general is is quite limited to the the ones i actually watch uh basketball is one of those carryovers so that's what gets it for me um beach volleyball though that's also super exciting it's very intense beach volleyball people like it it's a lot having played both sports it's equally or and sometimes harder because there's two players and you're playing on an uneven surface. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, uh, you know, so not the rhythmic uh, ball gymnastic or ribbon gymnastic is not your cup of tea. <laughs> um, no. no. <laughs> it's fascinating though. Um, Very mesmerizing it? to watch, but you sometimes I'm, I don't know how to score it and I don't know how. That's it, though. I think that's the problem with with uh, a lot of gymnastics or any kind of uh, figure skating is is like that. Dance is like that. Uh, there's no direct unless you're involved in the craft. There's no direct eye to know was that good or bad. That's like, wait. Why did that only get eight and not ten or five? And so I think that just immediately removes you from it. But watching it in the moment, it's an art. And that that's something that I have on a list somewhere to, is to go through those, all those sports that people might not know or mm-hmm. understand because they don't know how it scores or why that person was better than that person. When maybe that person figure skating is a good example for here in Canada is my wife figure skates and she's part of this and uh, she does synchronized uh, figure skating. So if one person falls, I know, okay, that's a small deduction, but if they do, if they don't do something or miss something, that's a bigger deduction. But in my head, I'm like, well, that person fell. So that's more of a visual thing in my head. I'm like, well, I know that's a mistake where I might not see the arm movement went the wrong way, but the judges do. And that's more of a deduction. And I had to get used to that so much to be like, but no, you should be winning because that person fell. And they're like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So 
see I, that make no sense to me. Right? Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it takes so much to really get, and like you said, if you're not involved in the sport, you would have no idea that, the, oh, the ball didn't spin one way, so clearly they made a, a mistake. So, um, but the first sport we did was, um, uh, was synchronized swimming. And the reading about it and learning the history. And the funny thing is, is there used to be solo synchronized swimming. Oh, you're oh back. There Did you, go, you hear yeah. me through all that? No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. I was like, now you're frozen on my end. And it was in a funny like position. I almost screenshot it. <laughs> uh so uh, the first event that we did was uh, uh, synchronized swimming mm-hmm. and uh, because they changed it to artistic swimming because um, it's less about uh, synchronicity, um, but it's about, there's kind of two swims now. So they did technical. So what they want. And then the second one is a free where you're supposed to show off all your skills and your team skill. Okay. Because tri- like we've been talking about, people didn't really get the scoring and anything to do with how it worked so to make it easier to comprehend and get people to join synchronized swimming they changed how things are done but there used to be solo synchronized swimming where in the name exactly (laughs) it's an oxymoron (laughs) exactly in the first three olympics that it was featured in there was duet and solo there was no team and you just and you're supposed to synchronize your routine to the music that's called choreography. <laughs> exactly. And so that didn't last too long and they, they don't do it anymore. Uh, so, and it's also fascinating because it's, it's the sport that only features women. There are no male athletes yet. Oh, yeah. Never thought of that. And lately, in the past few years, there have been mixed duet teams. So one boy, one girl. And that they have been that has gone as far as like the the world championships, but it hasn't been added or tempted to be added to an Olympic uh, program. Um, but yeah, it's it's really it's it's different to see a, a mixed pair when you're so used to watching just uh, you know women compete in it. But uh, it's it's very much a performance from the moment that you step out, it's, it's all a, a performance and you all have to be together and the amount of muscle it takes to egg beat for three and a half minutes while yeah. doing upside down choreo, it's just baffling. It's crazy. It's nuts, eh? It's crazy to realize how many sports are in the Olympics that are actually artistic. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, don't know what I'm saying from that. I just, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny how in this world, we still have such a divide between sports and the arts, but you forget how much they're really related. Uh, well, back to the basketball, the amount of coaches that I, I had to, when I played basketball, we took ballet classes to be light mm-hmm. on our feet. Like it, it benefits you. Yep. And I like to think that stigma is slowly or has made giant leaps to go away. Uh, it seems like it's been a, a slow process, but uh, yeah, I would say it's being more accepted. Um, but the the old guard, if you will, definitely was like, a, "No, you do you do sports. You don't act. You don't sing in a musical. What are you like?" <laughs> but yeah. it, there's so many benefits, and yeah, totally. 
Uh, and in addition, the new program, there's actually uh, now three on three basketball in the Olympics along with the main uh, basketball. So, yeah, I love three on three. I think it's super exciting. I love playing in three on three tournaments. It was, you don't need, you don't need conditioning. You just need skill and teamwork. That's mm-hmm. you get to 21 points really fast and you don't need to keep going up and down the court and be winded by halftime. So exactly. Exactly. The, the design of the routines in, in three on three too, I just think is so much more fascinating when you start to see the patterns of how it weaves in and out. I'm just like, Oh, right. It becomes less of a, of a surrounding game and mm-hmm. more of a cross. And I, I love it. I think it's just so cool. Well, JT, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast again. Uh, definitely uh, going to be requested. I'm sure even more than before. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if you want to give a shout out, uh, let everyone know what you're up to. You've been a big DJ streamer. Uh, so let them know where uh, they can find you. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, man. Uh, this one, my head wasn't as, as focused today, so I hope I didn't upset the, uh, the one email requester. But uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. I saw it fine, and I, I really love talking this stuff. Uh, where can you find me? Twitch.tv slash DJ underscore on underscore point. Uh, yeah, and there you can find my social media channels. And yeah, I actually started a new show on Saturdays, which is a lot less party oriented and more chatting and talking music and uh, just playing songs in the background kind of thing. So if that's your deal on Saturdays, come on by. Definitely go check them out. Uh, It's been very good to listen to while working out and Saturday mornings when I have to work, setting up the the place where I work. It's good to have it on in the background, uh, going through, turning everything on. So uh, thank you for that, uh, making my mornings go by a little bit quicker. Uh, and, <laughs> my pleasure, uh, man. Thanks for uh, coming on. Thank you.